Thank you so much for being uh, brave and bold and uh, having the courage to come back today uh, after yesterday. Uh, I asked my husband uh, yesterday, so how was it? And he's, he always gives me the gentle, uh, lovely criticism. And he said, you're so serious, Susan. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I kind of, I thought about it at the end of Lewis's talk just now, that it is a little serious. And I'll tell you, um, I've been in private practice for you know maybe 25 years, but prior to that, I worked at UCLA for um, quite a few years, and I worked with very sick people, you know, people that were long-term diabetics, people with kidney disease, with pancreatitis, uh, liver transplants, kidney transplants. And um, although I loved helping them and I loved being there and making a difference in their lives, it was very painful and it was very sad to see people who had um, gotten where they were genetically or hadn't taken care of themselves. And I still remember, even as a young dietitian, I would ask people who had amputations or you know, severe kidney issues, I said, tell me about your journey. What happened to you? And almost 90% of the time, they would say, I didn't take it seriously enough. I thought I was infallible. You know, and I know most of us are at, a, at an age where we've you know, lived a good life, but how do we really take this a little more seriously. We always think of the sins of over-drinking, you know, drugs, smoking, but really overconsumption can be in that category. And now the wonderful thing is there's all this wealth of research out there that gives us hope about how to turn things around, how to make our lives different. And um, every morning I get I get listservs with multiple studies, and a new uh, listserv came in just this morning as I was eating my breakfast that there were, there's now 27 randomized placebo-controlled trials that showed when individuals used time-restricted eating and fasting, it increased longevity by 14 years. 14 years, that's huge. Lowered risk of diabetes, lowered risk of heart disease, um, cancer, Alzheimer's, it goes on and on and on. So this new research, especially in the last year, it's, it's a game changer, right? It can increase your health span and your lifespan, right? Um, so let's say a quick prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And I pray that all that came today will get their needs met and walk away with hope to live a life fully in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a lot to cover today. I'm gonna to try to get to all your questions, if I can, and you are still free to catch me in the hall or between sessions if I haven't addressed your um, questions adequately. So where do we start? How do we 
how do we grapple with this information about feeding versus fasting, exposing our body to less insulin? And um, I have not a little infomercial, but I have this lovely man that came up to me, um, I think it was the first night, and he said, I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let him tell you. So where is he? Okay, come on up. So you have to talk loud, because you yes. have the mic. I, I don't have a problem talking loud. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Dutson. Um, here with my wife. We've been here for several years. We met Susan last year at very much a similar talk, and we were both. My wife's metabolism is changing, as we all are, um, and I've been overweight all my life as an adult. Um, and we were both kind of, we came out kind of encouraged, but also overwhelmed. This is a lot of information, and it's a lot of, Wow, okay, yeah, we see what we're doing wrong, but how do we change? Well, the first thing my wife and I decided, we're going to start focusing on the time-restricted eating. So we immediately started, because that's easy to do. I mean, all the other stuff, counting cards, oh my gosh, where are we going to go? So we just started, okay, 12 hours, we're going to fast overnight. That's what breakfast is about, right? You break a fast. So no eating after dinner till 12 hours later in the morning, that's our breakfast. And then the four hour break between each meal. That's where we started. Then, for me, I eat my breakfast at work, so I just started focusing on what I was eating. Then I started counting those carbs, and I realized I was eating, you know, 25 to 30 is what, the, what Susan is recommending. I was eating like over 60 just for breakfast. And it wasn't like I was eating unhealthy, it was a banana and some little Velveeta crackers and some stuff I was dumping in my coffee. So I started focusing on those things, and I took care of breakfast. Then I moved on to lunch, and I started working on dinner. And, and without, and I was doing this from a health standpoint. It wasn't like I need to lose weight, which I did. Um, but it was just, I was having some pain in my legs and stuff, and all of the things that kind of go along with getting older. In two months, I found out I had dropped over 30 pounds. Wow. And I was below 200 pounds for the first time in 30 odd years. So. Yes, like anything else, it's easy, but it's not simple. It's easy to come to Christ, but it's not simple to walk with the Lord until you have the power of the Spirit. So until you make a decision to walk with the Lord, you aren't growing with Him. Until you make a decision to make these changes, you won't see results. But if you do, you will. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Susan. I thought that was worth hearing. So, okay, so where do we start? So we went over this slide yesterday, but let's quickly, um, there's some people that weren't here yesterday, so let's move into this. The 10-hour window is the key. That's the key now. The Sachin Institute came out two months ago. When you eat in a 10-hour window, you start breakfast at eight, you end by six, or whatever time frame you want to use, that is the time window that actually helps rest the pancreas and the liver. Remember, those are the two organs that are involved in metabolism, right? You're, they need a 14-hour fast overnight to lower risk of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. 
And in fact, if you do have the APOE4 gene, the Alzheimer's gene, it's a little bit longer. Those people, their brains need a little bit longer of a rest overnight to reset and regenerate. But if you can't do a 10-hour window, start with a 12-hour window. Then gradually see how you can adjust your schedule, or you just do it on the days that you, that you can do it. You know, some people can only do it on the weekends. That's still a start. Every little eyedropper worth of change you make is going to lead towards health and be significant in ways you're not even realizing. Lower intake of carbs and sugars. I'll get to that. Track how many carbs you eat in a meal. And gradually increase time between meals so that you're getting at least four hours between each meal to help with, remember, the cleaning cycle. Remember, it takes about four hours for your blood sugar. Your blood sugar goes up, your, bo your body, your pancreas releases insulin. It stays elevated usually till at least four hours to calm down where your body is reset and ready for the next meal. We weren't meant to graze all day long because if you're eating all the time, remember, that makes your pancreas secrete insulin. Your insulin stays high all the time. You're never tapping into fat stores, right? You're keeping inflammation high in your body all the time. So what are the different types of carbs? We live in a carb society, right? So there's carbs everywhere. But the recommended ones that have less carbs are vegetables. Veg yes, vegetables have carbs. Salads have carbs. Uh, nuts, seeds, dairy products, if you want to um, spend a little more money, organic, grass-fed, have a lot more, uh, less antibiotics, uh, less pesticides, more nutrients, and fruits, but not a lot of fruit. We always think of fruit as very healthy, but this has changed a lot, and I'll explain that when I get to the fruit slide. Um, starches, you have to count your starches. Um, uh, you know, a large sweet potato, sweet potatoes, yams are very healthy, but that could be 100 grams of carbohydrate or, you know, eight, 10 slices of bread. Remember, a cup of pasta is 30 grams of carb, a cup of brown rice, 45. Um, one of those donuts out there with frosting could be 60, 80 grams of carb, four to six slices of bread. Would you really sit down and eat six slices of bread? Right? Probably not, but it's very easy to get a plethora of carbohydrates in your diet and you don't even know it. Right? And what happens is your, your pancreas says, oh, that's a lot of carbohydrates, secretes a lot of insulin, and then you wonder why two hours later you're hungry again. High glucose, high insulin, and then it drops. Right? And then you're, it, it's keeping you attached to food, attached to sugar, attached to carbohydrates when you, know, you don't even realize it. And I personally really don't think that sugar is an addiction. I just think it creates this attachment, right? And so if we change it, if we know what to do and consciously move towards that, it can lower our attachment to it. So you don't really, you're not thinking so much about food or thinking about the next meal or the next dessert. And avoiding um, a lot of pasta, white rice, potatoes. If you eat potatoes, this is a side point, Potatoes have the most pesticides of any food. So if you're eating potatoes, small amounts, and make sure they're organic. That's the one food you really want to make sure is organic. 
Um, there is a very good reason not to eat french fries out. And believe it or not, it's not so much all about the carbohydrates. Because potatoes or if you eat them, or french fries when you eat them out are inorganic. They're usually fried in inflammatory oils, like soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, and most restaurants do not change their fryer every day. So here we have lots of pesticides floating around in inflammatory oils, and then you have the carbohydrate component. And I say, if you really want french fries, buy organic potatoes, make them yourself in a healthier oil, right? There's a way around it. Sugars, candy, even dried fruit has a lot of carbs and sugars, sodas, et cetera, et cetera. And then processed carbs and sugars drive inflammation. Uh, so anything in a box, it's going to have sugar or, because sugar is expensive, high fructose corn syrup, it's going to have inflammatory oils and trans fats. And the way manufacturers get around the trans fat issue is it's a little sneaky. <laughs> they will put no trans fat on the label and you'll think, oh, it's healthy, it's okay. But what they do is they make the serving size so small that they don't have to report it. And who's gonna eat three potato chips, right? <laughs> it's like a joke, right? <laughs> or two crackers. But the other really sad thing is, and I wasn't gonna talk about this, but I had a few people at breakfast come up to me and then Jeffrey said, really Susan, you should talk about this, is we're seeing so many issues in our young people, you know, whether it's ADD, anxiety, gut issues. I see tons of teenagers in my practice with gut issues and it's really our food supply and the pesticides in our food supply. And you may see studies that say, oh, organic isn't any healthier, doesn't have any less minerals, vitamins, and that is true. But it's not the vitamins and minerals, it's the pesticides. And so I started researching this a while back, given you know, my practice, and I found this um, report by an unbiased lab where they compared the amount of Roundup in foods and in gluten in the United States and in Europe. And these numbers may not mean much to you, but you'll see the difference. In Europe, the amount of allowable pesticides is 0.2 parts per billion of Roundup, okay? Small. And in the United States, it's 2.75 parts per billion, right? And it's highest in the processed foods and cereals, so giving babies you know, Oreos and the Triscuits and the crackers and the Wheat Thins, those are actually the foods that are highest in Roundup. Right? And we're giving them to our little kids and we wonder why they have um, developmental issues and behavioral issues. I mean, sometimes it's just genetic, but they're actually thinking a lot of it is the food supply. Yeah. So how low do you go? And you heard Bob say this, um, or Gary say this actually, uh, about 25 to 30 grams per, of carbohydrates per four hours is the amount that is recommended in some of the research. But it's also what I've noticed in all my patients who are tracking um, their weight, tracking their blood sugars, uh, tracking their uh, biomarkers like cholesterol and triglycerides, that that's about um, 
the allowable amount, which is not a lot. Uh, it may be you're having vegetables or you're having a salad, you're having like a plain yogurt or some nuts or some avocado. Once you add those extra starches, then it's going to be very easy to go up to uh, much higher levels, 60, 80, 100 grams of carb. And at a certain age, your body just doesn't handle that well, so the liver and the pancreas start to absorb those extra carbs which leads to the inflammation and all the health issues that we talked about yesterday. So what does that translate to? What is 15 grams of carb? Well, it's about two cups of non-starchy vegetables. It's a medium fruit or half a cup of fruit. And I'm talking a medium fruit, which is like this big of an apple, where, you know, you go to the grocery store now and it's like this, right? And if you want to find a small or medium apple, it's actually hard to find. But a large apple could be 40 or 50 carbs. That's three slices of bread. And you're eating that in the afternoon with a little string cheese, right? It's a lot of carbohydrate. Your blood sugar's going up, then it's plummeting, and you're like, why am I starving an hour later? Right? A slice of bread, and remember, we're not making homemade bread at home with few ingredients. It's usually uh, a slice of bread that has multiple ingredients, sweeteners, inflammatory oils. So if you're choosing to eat bread, look at the label. How many ingredients? You want to try to get something with less than five ingredients that actually has um, you know, olive oil or a, a less inflammatory oil and is made with whole wheat or whole wheat flour, not just wheat flour, which is actually white. And if you decide to get serious about the 25 to 30 grams, maybe start with trying to add more vegetables. And we've been taught for years, eat more vegetables. You know, our mother said that. We kind of ignore it. But what's really fascinating is there's so many great reasons now than we ever knew to include vegetables. Because remember, I talked about your gut yesterday. You roll out your gut, it's half the size of a football field. So a lot can go wrong, and a lot can go right when you're feeding it. And the research shows that the gut is the second brain, and the food that the gut loves are plants. So when you feed yourself enough vegetables per day, you create a lot more gut bugs, and you create a healthy, they're calling it gut microbiome, right? Which is important for increasing um, immunity, lowering inflammation, helping prevent disease. So, you know, maybe add an extra vegetable. You know, there's some people that don't eat vegetables. My mother used to call me a terrible dietitian. Truly, I did not like vegetables. But when I met Jeffrey, he said, you know, in our family, we do what's called a no thank you serving. And I said, what's a no thank you serving? He said, every time there was a vegetable or food we didn't like, our mom made us take a bite. And I actually did this with myself, with vegetables and with avocados. I didn't like avocados, but all that research started coming about about the healthy fats and how important it was for helping your good cholesterol. So I did that. I love avocados. I eat them every day. And so if you don't like vegetables, you may be what's known as a super taster. Right? Super tasters have a lot of taste buds on their tongue, so they don't like the sour taste of vegetables. But if you eat it long enough, your taste buds kind of give up and uh, make, it, <laughs> make it okay. But you can also like 
do things like, you know, grate some Parmesan cheese or add a little balsamic vinegar. You know, there's things you can do to make your taste buds more amenable to eating vegetables. So they're low in, low in carbohydrates, high in fiber, and they feed your good gut bugs. So that's why vegetables are so important to help with inflammation. And what about fruit? So this is, gets a little complicated, but sugar is made of glucose and fructose, right? But sugar's expensive, so years and years ago, they uh, came up with high fructose corn syrup, which is about a 60-40, 60% um, fructose, 40% glucose. And that's what we see in a lot of the processed foods. Um, condiments like mayonnaise and yogurts and uh, chips and um, candy and cookies and you name it. It's, it's high fructose corn syrup and corn syrup. Even a lot of the healthier ice creams have corn syrup because it's cheaper. And what happens is all the cells of your body metabolize glucose, but the only organ that metabolizes fructose is the liver. Okay? The liver is actually a mirror into your metabolic health. Isn't that cool? The liver is so, so important because if there's danger, if the liver senses danger, it's the one that detoxifies and tries to help you and make it better. Right? That's why when people drink a lot of alcohol, the liver will sense the alcohol within 30 seconds and actually stop metabolism to try to digest the alcohol quickly and get rid of it, right? So that's a whole other topic. But when we consume lots and lots of fruit, especially these large uh, pieces of fruit or um, lots of juice, we're getting a lot of fructose. So if we're getting a lot of fructose that way and we're eating processed packaged food, we may be getting a lot more fructose than our liver can handle. And what is bad with that is you start to get erosions in the liver and create, remember I talked about yesterday, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which can lead to cirrhosis, which is becoming, remember, the number one cause of liver transplant now. Right. So if you like fruit, it's not a bad thing, but try to do it in that 25 to 30 grams. So if you like berries, you know, half a cup of berries is, you know, 12 to 14 grams of carbohydrate, right? But a big mango could be 50 or 60, right? A lot of people eat half a grapefruit for breakfast. It's about 15 carbs. You could do that as long as you combine it with some protein and fat, right? So there's choices, right? You have to decide how you want to spend your carbohydrates for those meals and, and be mindful about it. And like I said, your body will reward you with all these wonderful changes. But count the beverages as well. Beverages add up. So if you're going to Starbucks or Coffee Bean or Pete's, remember those drinks really add up. <clears throat> I remember about 15 years ago, I was at this conference and um, there was a researcher that looked at what's the cause of obesity in America. There's so many reasons, right? And his thoughts were, and he's actually done a lot of research since then, but he still agrees with this, 
one of the causes of obesity in America is beverages. And he looked at the graphs of beverages and weight gain. And when you think about it, I mean, when I was growing up, it was like soda on rare occasions. It was water, uh, milk, and remember Tang, <laughs> right, when I was growing up. But now we're, we have a coffee in our hand all the time, and it may have milk that breaks the fast. It might have whipped cream. It might have mocha. And remember, the coffee uh, drinks can be 60 or 80 or 100 grams of carbohydrate. Guess what? Your pancreas is working the whole time. Even though you're not eating something, you're drinking something. So looking at, if you're going to Starbucks, look at their, they have it online, the published amounts of nutritionals and how many carbs you're actually taking in. If you really like coffee, coffee has no carbs. Maybe you put a little half and half for cream. That has no carbs. So usually if you're just putting a little bit, it doesn't break the fast. So how can your carbs really add up? So think about a typical, quote, healthy breakfast. So you're doing whole grain cereal, sliced banana, maybe a slice of whole wheat toast with just a little bit of jam, and only a six ounce glass of orange juice that could equal 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrate, which is six to 15 slices worth of bread. And that's just at breakfast. You're behind the eight ball the whole day. You don't have a chance. That's like the earthquake, <laughs> okay? And many people have eaten like this for years thinking it's healthful, right? So how do we change that? Well, Maybe try a cup of cottage cheese or a cup of plain Greek yogurt, half a cup of berries, some nuts and seeds. You don't have to really limit them. Maybe a tablespoon of ground flaxseed, which has some omega-3s and some cinnamon, or a couple egg omelet with a little salad. When I was uh, in Europe for one of my conferences a few months ago at all the restaurants, people eat salad for breakfast. Sounds odd, but I actually kept doing it. You've actually, you got in your vegetables for the day. It feels really nice. Get ahead of the curve. And each of those breakfasts is only 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate, right? quite a bit less. So we hear this all the time. Well, you know, what if I'm healthy the whole week, but I have a cheat day or a cheat meal, or I'm at Mount Hermon and I have the, want the donuts, or the pizza, whatever it is. So I'll tell you what happens. For years we've been taught, okay, let's count calories. Let's be good all week and then we can save them up and have extra calories later in the day or later in the week or on the weekend. So the research shows a cheat day doesn't really, um, isn't really effective towards your health because what happens is, is if you have a large carbohydrate, we call it bolus, you know, like that type of breakfast, or you know, you go out to dinner and you only have one slice of bread, and uh, you have a glass or two of wine, and maybe you have just a little bit of potatoes or pasta, only a couple bites of dessert. I mean, that could be 80 or 100 grams of carbohydrate. And what happens is the pancreas says, oh, that's a lot of carbohydrate, and secretes a ton of insulin. And the research shows that that meal your insulin levels will stay high for usually four to five days. 
And then by the time it goes down after five days, you're like, oh, it's been a week, you do it again. <laughs> so you actually never recover. And that's why people say, I'm only doing it once a meal, why aren't I losing weight? That's why you're not losing weight. They did this one study where they measured the amount of inflammation, i.e. insulin, that we talked about yesterday, in response to a high-fat meal for, versus a high-carb meal. And a high-fat meal, the inflammation was only about three hours, and the high-carb meal was four hours, or excuse me, four days. So if you want to see results, even having going off track once a week may not lead to the place that you want to go. That doesn't mean you can't have a little extra carbs here and there. My treat is I do a square, two squares of dark chocolate every day, you know, a high percent with some nut butter. It feels like, you know, a healthy Reese's peanut butter cup. And that makes me feel like I've had a treat, which keeps me on track, but may not, that may not be something that you like. So you have to find the treat that you like that doesn't have that many carbs so you feel like, okay, I'm treating myself a little bit each day so that you can stay focused and mindful. But the other thing is to ask yourself, is this meal or this food worth it? Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's like, do I want to feel that inflammation in my body for the next four days? It's all about the value. And remember I said yesterday that values outrival ambivalence. And many times we don't realize we're going against our value of health and longevity, right? We're just saying, no, I just want to eat what I want to eat. And not realizing what is this doing in my body now, but what is it doing for the future, right? Do I truly want to create inflammation so that I lessen my lifespan and my health span? Only you can answer that. So this was a study that you may remember, I think it was probably about a year ago, where they looked at low fat versus low carb, right? And the results were quite similar in terms of weight loss. But what wasn't, what was in the details, it's always in the details, right, that you may get the headlines. But here's the details. Both groups lost weight, but the low-carb group not only had lower insulin levels, but they had what's called higher circulating levels of fatty acids, meaning their bodies were in fat-burning mode all the time. But the other really interesting piece was the size of the fat cell of the low-carb diet was significantly less which led to lasting sustainable weight loss, right? So if you want to lose weight and lose it for the long haul and not have to think about regaining it, the lower carb diet is gonna be the way to do that rather than a low fat diet. And now they're referring to hyperinsulinemia as inflama aging, right? Which can lead to not only diabetes, heart disease, but uh, Alzheimer's, and it has far-reaching systemic, meaning all overbody uh, influences. It's the driver, weight gain, atherosclerosis, heart disease, cancer, dementia, 
fatty liver, gut issues, and aging. So the bottom line is, the more you know, the more you measure, the more information you have, the more knowledge, then you can move forward and know what you want to do to meet your individual needs. So what's the connection to cancer? So about 20 years ago, one of my patients, she's still my patient, she brought me this, you know, it was in the paper, right? People read the paper <laughs> online. She says, look, Susan, there's this huge connection to insulin resistance, which you've been talking to me about in cancer. And so the research was there 20 years ago, but now it's really uh, much more solidified, right? If we have chronically high insulin levels, that makes us more predisposed to tumors, right? Especially in uh, different parts of our body. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's genetic uh, and there's not much you can do, but a lot of types of cancer are related to insulin resistance. And high insulin levels have a less favorable prognosis for breast cancer because excess glucose getting into the cells can lead to fast, faster cancer rates once it's developed. Okay. So let's move on to happier things. <laughs> uh, so protein. Protein is your friend. Protein helps with satiation. It helps even out the blood glucose curve. It makes you feel uh, less attached to food because it helps the blood sugar be, be more even keeled. So what are sources of protein? Grass-fed meat is healthier because it's cows that have been on the field for two or three years versus cows that are fattened up at a feedlot, you know, that are fed corn and soy. And uh, a little side point is about five years ago, the beef industry invited me to come to Kansas. And uh, I thought, oh, I don't know about that. Um, do I want to go to the dark side? <laughs> and Jeffrey said, you know, Jeffrey, if you've met him, he is my biggest advocate. I am who I am because of Jeffrey. So he said, you should go. You should ask the hard questions. So I did. I asked the farmers, I said, so why is it that you, you know, grass-fed is so much healthier? They said, it's economics. You know, it's two or three years. And this one sweet farmer, he had this bag of corn and straw. He goes, they like this better. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, and people like pasta versus vegetables, <laughs> right? So it's really about economics. And, but if you have the means to eat grass-fed, you're going to get a lot healthier profile in that meat because it's higher in what's called the omega-3 fats, which are the anti-inflammatory fats. In terms of poultry and eggs, it's called pastured. Pastured is the key word for grass-fed. And sometimes on a label, it'll have jadori chicken. Jadori is not a spice. It means it was grass-fed. But I, uh, my husband and I, we, we come to Mount Hermon, and one of our favorite things is we stop at this really beautiful grocery store in Santa Cruz called Staff of Life. And Staff of Life is like Disneyland to me. You know, it's like, I'd much rather go there than Disneyland. And they, you know, all their eggs were pastured, right? That was kind of cool. And that means the chickens have been running around and grass-fed. And when you uh, crack the yolk, you can actually see it's much more brilliant. Right? And the really cool thing about this, this is so important um, 
as you age. The egg yolk is full of what's called lutein and zeanthine, which is very important for preventing age-related macular degeneration. The poor egg yolk was always so vilified, right? And that, I can't go into it because I don't have enough time, but uh, that was wrong information, right? So eggs are very healthy. They're a great thing to eat for breakfast. They're very satiating. Think about when you've had an omelet versus a bowl of cereal, which which breakfast do you feel better on and which breakfast do you feel more sustained with, right? Usually eggs, you're full for quite a few hours versus cereal, you can be hungry in two hours. Wild fish, nuts, seeds, uh, organic or grass-fed dairy. Cheese isn't so bad, just the quality of your cheese. There's a big difference between grass-fed organic cheese versus processed packaged Velveeta, right? <laughs> It's quite a bit different. Okay? And you know, if you're vegetarian, beans or lentils. However, you have to be careful with beans and lentils because they do have a lot of starch. So some people can't handle them because of their guts. They have, you know, you should count the amount of carbohydrates, but they're high in fiber, high in a lot of nutrients, and have the strongest satiety factor, right? They help your hunger. And this is interesting. I learned this. I was, my very first job, I was the geriatric dietitian at UCLA, so I had to really study needs of people over 70. And the gut over 70 is not as efficient at absorption of protein. So your needs actually increase um, as you age with needing a little bit more protein. And that's a lot of times why we see people that are decompensating and frail because they're just not meeting their protein needs uh, with their metabolism and aging. So what about fat? As you know, fat is very complicated, right? But we're finding out that fat is so much more important than we really thought, right? You know, saturated fat has been vilified for a long time and I don't want to go into it because it'll take me about a 10 minute and we don't have the 10 minutes, but really if you're having grass-fed meat, uh, grass-fed butter, saturated fat, it's not, it's not bad, right? Some amount in your diet is healthy and can be helpful for making you feel full. And so, and uh, the other interesting thing is hormones are made of fat. So if you're on a very low fat diet, your body may not be able to make hormones. I see this a lot, this doesn't apply to this room, but with, you know, anorexic girls, they cut off all their fat and their periods stop, right? And I tell them, if you are not eating enough fat, you're not going to get your period, your, your hair isn't going to be shiny, your skin isn't going to look good, you know, so over time they subscribe, but it takes a little bit of time. <clears throat> and if you look at the, the, all the different studies on fat, there were 72 published studies on fat and heart disease. It showed that saturated fat had no effect. And they did a big study called the Framingham study, you may remember that, where they looked at physicians, and the ones that had the most saturated fat actually had the lowest risk of heart disease. Now, that's not a license for eating tons and tons of fat, but it's just showing fat isn't terrible. So what about the breakdown of the other types of fats? So when the research said, don't eat saturated fat, eat vegetable oils, 
the problem was that increased heart disease. Right? Because people started eating soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, which are actually known as omega-6 fats or inflammatory fats, inflammatory oils. And they didn't realize that, so it actually made heart disease worse. And if you're trying to eat more healthful fats, these are the two types, omega-3s, which is found in ground flaxseed, and DHA and EPA, which are in fish and fish oils, which are all inflammatory. The average American only has 100 milligrams a day in their diet of omega-3 fats, and we're supposed to be getting 1,000, right? So lots of inflammation, right? And heart disease and diabetes. And so if you're not a fish lover like me, <laughs> you know, maybe you take a liquid fish oil or a fish oil supplement or have some ground flaxseed to make sure you're getting enough. Monounsaturated fat is found in avocado, nuts, seeds, olive oil. Uh, those, are the one, those are the two ones to really focus on. And then think about, are you eating omega-6 versus omega-3 fats? Which ones? And which ones are you choosing to uh, cook with? You know, a lot of times we say, don't have the creamy dressing at the restaurant, have the vinaigrette. But even if you're having the vinaigrette, it could be made with soybean oil or corn oil. So it's really not that helpful anyway. When I go out to eat, I usually ask for olive oil and vinegar so I know that I'm getting um, olive oil. And to avoid the omega-6s, which increase inflammation, and the trans fats, remember? Soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, look at the labels. You'll see them because those are the cheaper ones for manufacturers. What about exercise? <clears throat> so aerobic exercise, 30 minutes a day, is the most beneficial to avoiding type 2 diabetes. They've, done, they've duplicated that again and again in the research. However, it doesn't always have to be done all at the same time. If you walked for 5 or 10 minutes after every meal, it forces the food you just ate into your cells, which lowers insulin resistance by 30%. 30%. Huge. Anaerobic exercises like weights and Pilates is the most beneficial for those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So the take-home message is to do a little bit of both so that you're helping your pancreas and your liver, which will both increase, or excuse me, decrease inflammation and increase decrease incidences of diseases associated with those organs. But try to have a personalized approach, right? So what about longevity over 50? That's why we're all here. How do we achieve a reasonable weight, be a non-smoker? If you drink, very, be very moderate. A few drinks a week, personalize your diet, exercise. And here's the research. Those who adopt those lifestyle factors live 14 years longer for females and 13 years longer for males. So it's a really, it's a big deal. Physical activity is the most important factor after smoking. Um, ooh, there's a typo. Half an hour of walking, not waking, <laughs> per day reduces all deaths by 50%. 40% cancer risk and 60% cardiovascular risk. 
There was a big study done a few years ago that men that exercise half an hour three times a week, 50% less risk of sudden death. 50%, huge, right? And even a 60-year-old can reduce their risk of disease 25% with moderate exercise. So a little bit goes a long way. What about uh, walking, say, uh, a couple hours, one day a week? Even that is super helpful. Yeah. Any exercise lowers risk of disease. So here's me. One of um, the Navajos have seemed to like me. And so they have had me go to remote areas to train their diabetes educators. So Jeffrey and I went to Farmington, New Mexico. And uh, the day before, we went to the Four Corners. And this is me at the Four Corners uh, doing a turn, right? That was kind of fun, right? Four states. Yes, OK. OK, it's minutes. <laughs> Full disclosure, I had the flu about a month ago, and I could not do anything. So I just laid in bed and did my Mount Hermon talk. <laughs> but look, obviously, my brain was a little off. OK, so the American Diabetes Association recommends that 150 minutes of moderate exercise three to seven days per week was the thing that le led to longevity. So the lady of leisure does not lead to longevity. <laughs> so how do you know? How do you measure? And I talked yesterday about how there's the surface blood work your doctor does, cholesterol, blood sugar, liver function tests, and then he sends you on your way and says, oh, you're fine, you're good. And then you've seen people who dropped out of a heart attack or uh, you know, all of a sudden you're, you have diabetes or you have cancer. And so how do you preempt that? And now the wonderful thing is we have availability of what they call biomarkers. And I talked a little bit about this last time, but I'll talk a little bit more about it this time, is if you are able to get your doctor to do biomarkers, you can get insight into what is actually going on in your pancreas and your liver that create inflammation so that you don't have to be that statistic. For example, there's um, C-reactive protein is a wonderful biomarker that shows all over inflammation in the body. Right? And we had a patient who had a C-reactive protein. It's supposed to be less than three. And she came up and her level was 50. And her doctor said, oh, let's watch it. I mean, that's such a, let's watch it. And this other doctor that I work with who um, said, we're not watching it. You're going for a scan tomorrow. And she had a huge tumor in her gut. And they operated, saved her life. She didn't even need chemo because they caught all the markers, right? What had happened if they just watched it? Right? So... Here's a couple of them. Start to look at your fasting glucose. And even though the range may be up to 110, it's not normal to have a fasting glucose over 90. So if you see 92, 95, 100, 105, that means your pancreas 
and your liver are not recovering overnight. Your fasting blood sugar should be in the 80s at the highest. So that's one thing to look at your blood work. Sometimes I'll have someone who comes in who see me because they have newly diagnosed diabetes and they'll bring me the history and I'll watch it. 90, 95, 100, no one flagged it. No one talked to them about it. And your three month average should be, it's called the A1C, less than 5.6. A lot of people are pre-diabetic, 5.7, 5.8, right? That means your liver and your pancreas um, are like really struggling. Insulin and C-peptide, those are the two measures that show how hard the pancreas is working. Those are readily available blood tests. They are not expensive, you know, maybe $30, $40, but physicians just aren't, aren't checking them and I find I really thought hard about this. Why aren't they doing this blood work? Because this is the blood work being done on all the studies. And I think many times they may not, it's not on their standard um, panels, so they're not doing it. But I think the other reason is, is because they'd have to sit and explain it to you, which would take more time. Because mm -hmm. I, I talk to people all day long in detail about their blood work to help them explain it, but that's not the way of medicine right now. Fructosamine, that's an easy test. It's a two-week blood sugar average, you know. What's your blood sugar averaging over the previous two weeks? And APOB, if you can get your doctor to measure APOB, which is only about $50 extra if your insurance won't pay, it's a much better indicator of um, plaque and heart disease than LDL cholesterol, far better. Right, so that's one. The way I explain it to my patients is, I ask them, do we care about the cars on the 405 or the people in the cars? Right, and I know there's other um, very busy freeways around here, but in LA it's the 405. Right? And of course, yes, we care about the people in the cars, but when we're getting somewhere, we really care about the cars, right? We care about the traffic. So the people in the cars, that is the cholesterol number. The cars are what's called the cholesterol particles, and APOB measures those particles. And those are the things that circulate in your body and cause plaque. So your cholesterol may be okay, or it may be high, but what are your particles? That's the more important number. If you want a whole panel, you ask your doctor, I know you're doing a cholesterol panel, but I really want fractionated lipids. Ask for fractionated lipids, and that will show the whole range of particles. C-reactive protein, I talked about that. That's all over body inflammation. Vitamin D, very important. Many physicians are measuring this, many are not. It's inversely related to insulin resistance. So if you have a low vitamin D, it means you're more insulin resistant, and if you're not, Getting enough vitamin D, it's very hard for your body to, to burn belly fat. So it's very, vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's a hormone that helps with multiple um, metabolic systems in the body. And this is one, HOMA IR. It's an excellent measure of general health and hyperinsulinemia. It's in all the studies, HOMA IR. I don't see any physicians doing this except specialized physicians that know about it. Ferritin 
which is actually an iron marker. I actually had a man in my practice that had really high ferritin levels, and I wanted him to go to this doctor I work with, and he's an accountant, so he didn't want to spend the extra money. And he's been my patient for 20 years, and I've taken care of his mother. And um, I'll call him Bob. I said, Bob, I know you're very particular about money, but I really, your ferritin level's high, and I'm worried. And I don't usually say that to clients. I said, I'm worried. I need you to go. And his ferritin is, you know, supposed to be 50, 80. His was like 3,000, right? Really bad. So he went, and he found out he had huge levels of inflammation. He was a heart attack waiting to happen. He needed actually to give blood to get his ferritin levels down. And he came back, and he said, thank you for saving my life. So, you know, so he said that was the best money I ever spent. So have your ferritin levels checked. Fibrinogen, uric acid, if you have high uric acid levels, you are very high risk for gout, right? And you don't want to, gout is very painful. You don't want to do that. And I'm running out of time. Here's your 10-step checklist manifesto for health. This is my checklist for you to leave you with today. Eat in a 10-hour window. Track how many carbs you eat. Try to make them less than 25 grams per meal or per four hours. Limit or cut out all refined carbs and sugars. Try to increase your intake of non-starchy veggies and salads. Gradually increase time between meals. Aim for four hours so that you get that metabolic flexibility. If you're attached to food and you need to eat every two hours, you have metabolic inflexibility, which means you're running on sugar. You're not running on fat. And the goal is to run on sugar right after a meal and then drop down and run on fat. Drink mostly water, sparkling water, tea, coffee. Try to stay away from things that have carbs and sugars and calories in your beverages. Move after meals, even five or 10 minutes, and try to move at least 30 minutes a day. Stop eating at least three hours before bedtime, because remember, it takes five to six hours to digest your food, and if you're eating too close to bed, your organs are struggling to digest, which robs you of that sleep rest and restore time, right? And sleep is so important. Sleep is the foundation, right? Your body needs at least a minimum of seven hours to really rest and restore overnight, right? And so many times we're running on fake energy and that creates disease, inflammation, you know, leads to things we don't want. And pull for your value of health, right? So how do you move yourself up the ruler of behavior change? You know, you're saying, oh, Susan, she's giving me too much to do. I can't do it. <laughs> you know, you're at zero, trying to go to, to 12. And you're holding on, you're hugging the tree, right? This is Jeffrey holding, hugging a 900-year-old tree in Vancouver. I use this in my presentation sometimes. You're hugging the tree saying, I know what it's like here. You know, and I'm, I'm telling you, you know, it's gonna be so much better in the forest. But you're like, yeah, but I know what it's like over here. I'm not really sure I can do what it takes to get over there, because you're ambivalent. You know, should I go this way or should I go that way? Right? So, you've heard me say this a few times, values outrival ambivalence. How do you wanna feel every day? Do you wanna be sluggish and tired? 
Do you want to have better energy? How's your mobility? Do you want to be able to travel? Come to Mount Hermon. Come to all comers every... Right? How do we take care of our temples and pull for that? Do you have health concerns or a family history of health concerns? The pastry may not be worth it. So how do you find substitutions that do work? And are you going to let your health win? And I came across this verse just actually a day ago. I I put it in, and I love this picture of the Mount Hermon Chapel. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Because this is a discipline, you know? This is our health. So I'm gonna show this quick video and I'll answer a few questions and I'm gonna send you off to lunch. You have lost some weight. You look fantastic. Okay, this is worth it. Just watch. You have lost some weight. You look fantastic. I guess the LaFet diet that I recommended has really helped you. LaFet, are you kidding? Are you on drugs? I am eating a lot of fat. I just cut back on the carbs. Fat has helped me lose the weight and will reduce my risk for breast cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. That is ridiculous. Where in the world did you come up with these ideas? From reading the New England Journal of Medicine and other peer-reviewed journals, doctor. (laughs) So I... Okay, so I think I've answered most of these questions. I tried to weave them in today. If I haven't answered your question, like I said, uh, please come up and, and see me. You know, a little curbside consult, not too long. The little curbside consults are okay. We are selling books. Remember, the proceeds go to Mount Hermon. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your attention and your diligence to your health. sure. So the, the recipe for life is, I call it my child. It's a late textbook for health, has a little bit of everything, lots of recipes. But if you really want to know about nutrients and metabolism and protein, that's the book to get. That's a big one. We ran out last year, so we brought 50 this year. I think we still have 20 left. Uh, the baby book is about is for women who are pregnant or have gestational diabetes. I call it my baby book, but it's you know for granddaughters or daughters you have that may be pregnant. It's a nice little book for women. And then a healthy baker's dozen is my solution to healthy cookies. If you really want a healthy cookie, how do you have ingredients? Um, and remember, we had a lot of bad cookies in our house because Jeffrey's a stickler for. Uh, for things tasting like real cookies. So they really do taste like real cookies and they don't have fake sweeteners. The 101 is really my solution to 101 ways to control inflammation. So it's not just about diabetes, it's how to prevent diabetes, how to prevent all these diseases. And I put it in a little book um, and you know, Jeffrey said to me, you could write that book in your sleep in an hour. That book took me a year to write. It, you know, putting it all together in a short format was very hard, but um, I know it's helped a lot of people. So thank you much, and uh, I hope to see you soon. 
Oh, olive oil, avocado oil. Avocado oil. Mm -hmm. What is what is a bad one? Soybean, corn, and vegetable. <laughs> <laughs>